Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, till I may love what thou dost love and do what thou dost do. And that is an, actually, unfortunately, an exact opposite to what this church is doing as we come to the last message of the last of the seven churches, the church of Laodicea. In contrast to that need for dependence, we're going to find today really a stern warning. They're not dependent. They, and they need to seek after their relationship with Christ again and seek to do what he wants them to do. And so with the end of these messages, this is one that we need to pay close attention to. This is a sobering reality that can happen to any church. We can think that we're doing well. Actually, in Jesus' assessment, we may not be doing well at all. We need to turn to him like we heard in that last song as we sang, turn to him and depend fully on him. Help us to minister and be faithful and serve him faithfully. So Jesus in his last mess in his message to the last of the seven churches here, and if you'll remember the map, I think it's still back there. Um, we've kind of gone in a horseshoe through Asia Minor, Laodicea, on kind of a distance away from Ephesus. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But Jesus is going to describe himself here again. This time, he will describe himself as the faithful and the true witness. And really, as we'll see, the initiator, the beginner of creation, the creator. An emphasis on his deity again. And as that true witness and as the creator and as the head of the church, he knows the temperature of each ministry. He knows, folks, if we're, as we'll see in a minute, hot or cold. Or if we're somewhere in the middle. And if we're somewhere in the middle, he's going to deal with you. Sick and lifeless ministry will be dealt with by Jesus Christ. He will not let it stand. And so we must pay attention and say, Lord, would this be true of us? And if it is, help us to change. We all have a tendency to be satisfied with a certain level of service where we are. And when we become so satisfied, we can actually decrease and we can um, we can allow into our lives a, a lack of passion and devotion to Christ and think we're doing okay and be satisfied with that. Be satisfied really with tepid service. And folks, Jesus will not have that. And by his grace and mercy, we can understand that he will deal with it. He will bring it up. He will give us time to deal with it like he does with this church. But we need to be willing to deal with that. Let's listen to his message this morning. Let's go ahead and read verses 14 through 22 together of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, 
you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I am prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, let us hear this this morning. This message is not singularly for this church thousands of years ago in Laodicea in that area near Asia Minor. But it's for your churches today, your people today, that we would honestly examine ourselves through the lens of the Spirit, that we would be submitted to what Jesus has to say about our own deficiencies in worship and in ministry, and that we would be willing to change, that we would not be comfortable and satisfied where we are, but we would seek to grow and to mature and have eyes that see accurately as Jesus sees, and be willing to repent. So give us those, to give us that perception today as we look at this message, Christ the Laodicea, and apply it to us as well. Father, help us to be a church that is devoted to your things, to the things of Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, there was a uh, story that I um, read as an older child, and we've introduced to our boys over the years, I'm sure you've probably heard of it, it's a classic story called The Secret Garden, and uh, they've seen uh, the movie, some versions, and, and the book, and there's, it, it's a well-written book, a lot of interesting aspects to it, there's the main protagonist, the main character is a little girl called Mary Lennox, 10 years old, her parents, they live in India, and they were originally from England, obviously. This is in the late 1800s, and her parents die in some riots that happened, and so she's sent to live with her uncle in Yorkshire, England. And the other main character, then, is this uncle, her uncle's son, Colin Craven, who's hidden away in a secret room in the house, and Mary eventually discovers him, and... Um, he has his own set of difficulties to deal with, not the death of his family, but the estrangement from his father as his father's secluded away after the death of his mother, and he's kept in a sickbed. And he is, he has deceived himself with the help of adults around him 
that he is sickly and will be so forever. And really, by the time Mary meets him, in his own way, he's become comfortable or satisfied with his, his condition. That he's going to be sickly and probably die early. And he's very demanding and selfish. The neat thing, I won't, obviously won't go through the whole book, but the, the point and the turning point in that is when Mary and some of his friends help him to see that that's not his true condition. They open up the windows of the dark room. They eventually entice him to go outside and enjoy the sunshine and uh, the light and creation and uh, the, the air and to breathe that in and to uh, walk through gardens together. And as he does this, he undergoes his own transformation. He becomes more of an optimist rather than a selfish, uh, inward-looking, um, gloomy person. And eventually his father comes back and shows him the love that he needs. But he was satisfied with his condition. And this little boy named Colin Craven needed to wake up to the reality of his need for change. And by the end of the book, he does so, and it's a beautiful ending for uh, multiple things that happened in his life. Well, in reflection, that's a good correlation to this message that Jesus has to this church uh, of the city of Laodicea. They're satisfied and comfortable in the situation they're in. And Jesus is going to say, wake up. You need to be realistic about your situation, your condition, and change. Because change is available. But if you don't realize it, and you don't recognize your need for change, none will come. And Jesus graciously, folks, for each of us, for this church and for each of us, graciously shows us our need for change. He doesn't leave us with wrong thinking. So we need to listen today and analyze this in our lives. His final address, the city of Laodicea. The title of this message, it sounds kind of negative, I know, but call it lukewarm and wretched. Because that's what this city is, and they need to wake up to that. Jesus refers to himself as the true witness, and the true witness exposes ineffective local ministry. Because Jesus knows the full extent of our ineffectiveness. Um, this church in the city, Laodicea, it was the southernmost of the seven churches, and it was a wealthy, independent city at the end of most of that crucial highway that we've discussed that a number of the other cities were on, and this was at the end. And its very name carried the sense of independence and confidence, ruled by the people, was really... Um, the meaning of that name in the Greek. And it lay in this beautiful valley, the Lycus Valley, which it shared along with two other churches. You might uh, re remember one, Colossae, and another one, uh, Hierapolis. And these three cities together shared this valley, and it was kind of a tri-city region as such. This valley was a frequent route to the west, and Laodicea was its guardian. It was the city that you had to go through to get to the west. And so it was very well known and, and uh, populated. The, the road also from the other cities that we've talked about recently, Pergamon and Sardis, crossed through the valley and through the city as well. Because of where it was in the valley, nearer to some of these hills and some mountains, it was considered almost impregnable. It was able to defend itself, unlike some of these other cities. And um, it was in a, a secure setting. 
But it did have one great weakness that was a real problem. And that was the city's water supply, of all things. It was actually, Laodicea was dependent on others to supply most of their water. And that's a pretty important thing, you would imagine. The aqueducts that they had underneath the city were such that they could easily be disabled by enemies, and that had happened many times, and almost, um, although in other aspects it was impregnable, when that happened, um, they were weakened in a great way. And then another thing happened as the city began to grow and where it was uh, located, it did become almost a major metropolis. Well, when that happened, they had to seek other ways to get water in because there were so many people there. There wasn't enough water to meet the needs. Of, there wasn't enough good water. And so it had to be imported in to meet the growing needs. It was founded around 250 years before Christ, and it came to have a very diverse population not unlike some of our cities in our own country today. It was actually the judicial, commercial, and financial center of the whole region. It was a very important city and very wealthy, especially after Rome took control. And furthermore, it did contain a famous school of medicine. It included groundbreaking treatments for eyesight and different things at the time. And all of these aspects made this city and its people very wealthy. You remember that earthquake that we've talked about that took place with some of those other cities and the devastating consequences and effects that it had? Well, that earthquake also affected Laodicea. Laodicea. And um, remember that the other cities had to take uh, financial help from the emperor. But Laodicea was different. The city actually refused Roman government funding, and they made the repairs themselves because they were financially able to do so, and then also help provide financial aid to the other cities around them. So they were able to take care of themselves in that way. Another negative was the city also housed a temple to the god of the Lycus Valley, Mankaru, and this city was also a center for society and religion and connected to this market and the medical school. And really, in their worship, Laodicea, because they were so independent, shaped their own version of the worship of this God to suit their own purposes. They were a confident, independent people that thought they needed no help from anyone. <laughs> and unfortunately, the church took on those characteristics as well. Jesus is going to deal with that. There was a significant Jewish community made its home here. And church history, we don't have this from God's word, but actually indicates that, remember when we went through the study of Philemon, his son, um, Archippus, was probably instrumental in starting that church there, interestingly enough. So as Jesus gets ready to address this church, he refers to himself, look at verse 14, as the words of the Amen. Or amen, however you say that. Well, that's an interesting thing, an interesting way to describe yourself. Why would Jesus, I mean, amen is something that we say at the end of a particularly good message when we're um, motivated to do so. Or maybe we say a lot of inward amens. At our church in Maryland, there was an old elder lady that we referred to as the amen lady because we could always count on her, if nothing else, to throw in some good amens at just the right time. And then when she passed away, we missed her. 
But Jesus, what is he saying when he refers to himself as the amen? Well, the Greek word means something that is verifiable or certain or unchanging. And so just for our understanding, when we do say amen, we're saying we agree with something that is true, that is unchanging. So at the same time, we want to be careful <laughs> and make sure we're amening the right things. And uh, hopefully the truth I'm providing you is something that can be amen. That's my goal. But Jesus here, the still, what is he describing himself as? He's describing himself as fully reliable. You could say he is the real thing. He's fully trustworthy. Amen. Amen. He is the amen. Thank you, sir. <laughs> and then he continues that as a description of the faithful and true witness. And a witness is someone, obviously, who verifies the truth. And so Jesus is, of course, as you would expect, the ultimate, fully reliable witness of the things of God, because he is the word, as John has told us in his gospel, and he is God. And he reminds us of that by describing himself, interestingly, by as the beginning of God's creation. This is one that... Um, Many uh, religions and cults have taken advantage of, and they look at this and say, see, he was created, he was the beginning, he was the first of the created beings, that's what that's saying here. Well, I think you understand, that's not what this is saying, and that's certainly not what Jesus is saying about himself. He is saying in this, in effect, not as beginning that he was the first one to be created, but the Greek grammar here better states him. It's really, he's the beginner. He's the initiator of creation. Now that we can fully agree with. And these people, this church in the midst of a very confident city, need this reminder of who Jesus is because he's going to shatter their conceived reality about themselves with the candid reality of their true condition. You don't argue with the faithful and true witness, the amen, the creator. No one can argue with that, or they shouldn't anyway. He is deity himself, and he ascribes to himself then the ownership of creation and the ability to be a faithful and true witness. I was reminded... Uh, other, you know, you know that I like to read historical biographies and things. And right now, I'm in the middle of uh, first of a series of three about Theodore Roosevelt and enjoying that one of our U.S. presidents, the beginning of the 1900s, and heard this story that I thought was a good opposite to what way that Jesus describes himself here. I call it the unfortunate testimony of Sergeant Bucky Taylor. This took place as Theodore Roosevelt, a few years before he became a U.S. president, had already become a national war hero. Maybe you've already read the story and you know some of this. For his leadership in leading his Rough Riders, we all know Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders, in battle in the Spanish-American War in Cuba. I'm not going to tell you all about that. But he became a national hero when he came back to the States. He found that he was a national celebrity, and he was quickly asked to consider a number of political offices, including governor of New York State. And so that one piqued his interest. He acquiesced to that. And he soon began his own version of campaign stops up and down the state 
with a number of these rough riders who had served with him in tow, along with him, to introduce the candidate. One guy in particular, one sergeant named Bucky Taylor, made the greatest faux pas of the campaign when he gave this introduction for Teddy. He said, I want to talk to you about my colonel. He kept every promise he made to us, and he will to you. He told us we might meet wounds and death, and we done it, and he was there in the midst of us. And when it came to the great day, he led us up San Juan Hill like sheep to the slaughter, and so will he lead you. <laughs> and Roosevelt said afterwards, this hardly seemed like a tribute to my military skill, but it delighted the crowd, and as far as I could tell, did me nothing but good. And it did delight the crowd, and it made it more popular than ever. But here was one that tried, but was not a very good witness to the reality of things. And thankfully, people took it um, the wrong way, and it worked out for Roosevelt. In that instance, it was an embarrassment to him, that people, but thankfully, people misunderstood. But in contrast to that, folks, when Jesus, the faithful and true witness, says something, there's no misunderstanding. And it's our fault when we misunderstand his intention because he's clear and he's fully reliable in a way that we could never be. So he makes a strong statement then about this church that they need to pay attention to because he knows the reality of their situation. And unfortunately, it's a strong statement about the uselessness of this church's works. They're neither hot nor cold. Verse 15, we can recite this, right? I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus makes um, great use of a common problem that we have all experienced. Uh, we have, sometimes we've had some trouble with our water heater, and I'll, I'll work with it, and then the water comes out extra hot, and which is good, but then when we turn it to cold and leave it there, nozzle, and it's in that position, sometimes I'll go to get a glass of water thinking it'll be cold, and it still has some of that, that hot water, and it just says lukewarm, and you know that feeling, it's, oh, it's exact, opposite. you wanted a cold drink, and ugh, you just spit it right out, um, it's disgusting. So this is a very um, vivid statement of what Jesus feels about this particular church, and it's not commending in any way. It's not positive. Nobody wants this type of description for their ministry. But these folks were particularly surprised because they thought that they were extremely useful to the work of Jesus Christ. They thought they were great. They were comfortable. They thought we're doing a great job. Look how look how independent. Look how confident they were. And they couldn't realize their true spiritual nature at all. They reflected the confidence of their city. And folks, they had no basis to be confident at all. <laughs> Jesus will tell us here in a minute. They were not useful at all, but repugnant. And that's interesting. Because when we come to this verse sometimes, and you may have heard this taught, that cold or hot. So it's comparing the cold would be described as those that are, are not doing good ministry, that are being disobedient, like some of the other churches that have been mentioned. But 
at least they're, I don't know, confident in their disobedience and they're um, strong in that way. And Jesus has told them to repent, but, you know, at least they're doing something. And of course, then the hot is described as those that are doing what's right and passionate. Well, really in the context here, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Because would Jesus really say, you know, out of the two, I, yeah, I, I'd love to have you warm and hot, but at least if you're cold and disobeying me, you're not lukewarm. Would Jesus really say that? Would he commend in any way disobedience? I don't think so. What he's saying is, really, is that both cold and hot water are useful to us. Both have great uses to us. So really, don't misunderstand his analogy. He's really focusing on the fact that lukewarm water is not useful at all. And so it will not be used any further if the temperature does not change. And really, it's interesting, the water supply of Laodicea itself was a picture of this. Remember, it was a tri-city region, right? So you had Heropolis to the north that had a hot springs nearby that also served medicinal value and was very popular. You had Colossae to the east that enjoyed cold spring water. But unfortunately, again, that water problem, by the time the hot springs flowed to the aqueduct at Laodicea, they were yucky, tepid, lukewarm. And as tepid water disgusted the people, so Jesus said, your lukewarm, tepid service disgusts me. What a strong statement, folks. And they had a picture of that literally right there in their city. Maybe some of them have tried to drink that water earlier. Nobody wants to be useless and lukewarm. And this is a wake-up call, a strong word, the strongest words for any church in all of these letters. Don't find yourself. If you find yourself in this condition, change because it disgusts Jesus Christ. Why such a strong statement? Because Jesus knows of our, also our unawareness of our ineffectiveness. He knows the extent of our ineffectiveness. And he knows that we're unaware of it many times. And he's trying to really shock them into realizing their true condition. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And literally in this city, they could say that. Maybe some of them had jobs uh, where they were very wealthy. And uh, they, they were very confident in their, in their own wealth, in their own status, position, whatever. And so they just transferred that to their church situation as well. Maybe it was a church that, that gave to a lot of the other churches in the other cities, as the city was wont to do with those that needed help from the earthquake. Maybe the church also gave to those other cities and said, look how wonderful we are, able to do this in a way that no other churches aren't. We don't know for sure the basis of their confidence but they were confident they didn't think they had any needs. And Jesus says, you don't realize that you are actually wretched. Look, look at this. Listen to this list. Pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I'm sure whatever the church was expecting from a message from Christ to hear this list had, well, it was a wake-up call, hopefully, to them. Nobody wanted this type of list in describing their service to Christ. 
and yet they were so deceptively confident that he had to shock them with the reality. They were content, complacent, and the faithful and true witness reveals they're exactly the opposite. Wretched means in miserable condition. Pitiable means they're pathetic. <laughs> Strong words, right? They were also poor as a city that was used to used uh, to having wealthy people and probably many wealthy people in this church. They're actually spiritually, they're in poverty. And that word poor talks about those that are in such poverty, they have to beg others for help. Jesus says you're spiritual beggars. Hmm. They were spiritually blind and naked as well. And this had to be a humbling thing. Hopefully it was to hear for those in the city. And this is interesting. This was a city that was renowned, remember, for medically, for its eye medications. And it also produced a premium black wool that clothed whole nations. And uh, the other cities nearby produced their own wool, but the wool at Laodicea was considered the absolute best. So here's a city that's able to help people with their eyesight and to clothe others. And Jesus said, there's a church, you're naked and you're blind. A wake-up call for sure. Can we be in such condition today? churches today that we think we're doing great because we're looking at how many people we're pleasing maybe people are enjoying and i'm talking generally i'm not talking specifically about village chapel but in our churches today you know people have we they have generally a checkoff list did people really enjoy the music did they was the pastor funny enough and told told enough jokes um was there a good coffee that day and all these things that in so many churches are so important that you have a certain list you check off. Yep, we did that. We did that. We're popular. We're gaining. We've got great numbers. We must be an awesome church. And the probably the press says, the publicity says they are too. But Jesus looks maybe at some of those churches and says, you have no idea of your true condition at all. You're actually wretched, blind, and naked. Could there be some of that in our own church? Are there some areas that we think we're doing really well at, and we're just kind of coasting and becoming comfortable as a church family? Each of us have to look into our hearts and, and seek Jesus' assessment of our own ministry within our church. And the Spirit will make it clear. Maybe there's some areas in each of our lives that we think, yeah, we're, we're doing really well. That's my strong, that's my strength. I'm doing great. And maybe if you submitted that, if I submitted that over to Jesus, he would have a different assessment. The point is we ought to at least have talked to him about it. Lord, you show me. Don't just let me continue to operate on my own considerations and my own assessment of my own life and ministry, but Lord, you assess let the Holy Spirit show me that I could change. The more that we pray that, Lord Jesus, I know that I have a propensity to think I'm doing okay. You help me to see the reality of who I am in my service, and I'll be willing to change. Jesus says you must change. The true witness provides correction for ineffective ministry. Harsh words, but he doesn't. 
leave his people there. He says, there's hope. I will provide correction so that your ministry will be ineffective no longer. Once you have realized and agreed with me, said amen, that your ministry is in this position, then we're, will, then we're able to change. And he says, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. These are direct shots, if I can put it that way, that these people would fully understand. They thought that they were rich. Jesus says, actually, you're, you're putting your time and your money into the wrong things. Here's what you ought to be buying, gold refined by fire. Well, what does that mean? What is he saying here? I think best this represents spiritual wealth of a changed life, refined by fire. Jesus is saying you're doing putting so much effort and wealth in doing so much, but you don't realize you're not growing. You're weak. You're lukewarm spiritually. I can change all of that. If you'll submit yourself to my changing power and I will refine you as gold and I will change your spiritual condition, that is what you ought to be putting your resources into and spending your time, let's put it that way. This is ultimately, remember, this is the work of Christ, not anything that we can do. You also may be rich. Well, we are already rich, maybe wealthy. He says you need to be rich spiritually the power of a changed life and dependence upon Jesus Christ. And to a group of people that prided themselves on their garments, he says, you need to put on some really nice garments, some white garments. You're naked right now, spiritually naked. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Put on some new clothes, clothes that I have for you, the white garments. And the white garments reflect righteous deeds of a changed life. As Jesus works that gold and refines that gold, they truly will have works that are righteous and are useful. And Jesus says, put on those garments. Because right now your works are leaving you naked. And then remember, they had that special eye salve they were so famous for. And he says, you're still blind. Salve to anoint your eyes. The spiritual eye salve that corrects deception of one's condition and provides true spiritual insight. Jesus is putting that salve on them, even as John and the others relay this message to this church. And he says, see, maybe it's kind of, you can also think of eyeglasses, right? We don't realize how bad our vision is till we go to the eye doctor and he tells us, or she tells us, and we put glasses on. It's like, wow, everything's different. Well, Jesus is putting that salve, those eyeglass, spiritual eyeglasses, and say, well, see, see your real spiritual condition? Now let's change that. Let's put your efforts. I'll put my effort into that, and you live for me. It's a severe warning. But he reminds them, even though his words are severe, it's done out of reproof and discipline, done out of love. Not to be mean. And isn't it wonderful, the grace of Jesus, that he adds this in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I may sound harsh. I may be being very direct, and he is. But he says it's not out of anger. It's not of Jesus coming and saying, I'm done. I'm fed up. Can't you all see your awful, despicable condition? 
He's saying, that's not why I'm doing this at all. It's because I love you that I will reprove and discipline. So remember my love and be zealous to turn from your condition. Now that you can see it, turn from it. Don't stay in it. And seek after me. Repent and desire change. We tell this to our kids, right? We certainly tell this to our kids on a regular basis. You know, boys, when we have to bring discipline and correction into your life, it's not something that we enjoy. And we mean that. We're not cruel people. We don't enjoy. There's, I thought, boys, there's lots of other things I'd rather be doing right now than having to deal with your sin. But because I love you, and I point out as well, if we didn't love you, we'd just let you do what you want to do and reap the consequences of it and say, oh, well. But because we love them, we deal with their sin. Jesus, in a much more full and inclusive way, says, because I love you, I will deal with your sin so that you will recognize your true pitiful condition and repent and turn. Jesus allows for repentance before his, before his discipline, and he gives opportunity for growth and perseverance. Now, here's a famous verse. Fortunately, is misunderstood a lot of times. Probably remember that painting. Maybe you've seen a version of that painting of Jesus at the door with his lantern. He's knocking. There's actually three different versions of that. I looked it up trying to find the right one just to see that. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This has been misunderstood many times as an evangelism call to invite Jesus into your life by opening the door. I think that's a secondary application. Certainly, as Jesus offers salvation, he invites people to accept him into their lives. Be careful about telling people to accept him into their heart because that, that's kind of confusing for people. You know, what does that mean? Really? Better to say to accept him as Savior and into their lives. But, we see that picture and we think that's the case. In a secondary way, it can have application, but you think of the context here. He's talking to those that he loves, who he's disciplining and reproving. And in that reality, the primary context is a call of obedience from the master to his servants that are already his servants to let him in so that he can have further fellowship with them. Jesus says, you are my children. There's so much more I want to do. I want to change in your lives. He is, uh, there, are, there is, I think, a misinterpretation here of some scholars that think that the Laodicean church was filled with unbelievers, with those that didn't have true professions. Well, I think Jesus makes it clear that he loves them, that he's working in their lives. These are believers that he's talking to. And yes, there is, we want to proclaim the call to accept Christ. But here he's saying, let me have further fellowship with you. Don't shut me out in any area of your life. Fellowship at meals was a privilege, an honor of association with a particular person. Jesus is giving us the opportunity to have him at the table and honor him further with every area of our life. Let's be honest. There are areas that we all tend in our lives to shut Jesus out of. Jesus, you can look at this area. You can look at this area. But no, not that door. That, that, that's my own. I'll give you everything else. But I don't want you in that room. 
I want you to open that door. Jesus says, no, I'm knocking. Let me have all of your life so we can have full fellowship. Beautiful picture there. I can eat with him or her. Be with me. Isn't there a deep down desire, folks, we should be at least, to have a deeper fellowship with Jesus, to grow to know him more? Isn't there within each and every one of us that are truly his own, a desire to more? I just want to fellowship with you even further. I want to know you more, to trust you more. Jesus says, I will do that when you let me. His final promise again, rule and reign with him to the faithful. Jesus said, you should have no misunderstanding, folks, that those that are faithful, that persevere, will rule and reign with Jesus forever. That's a wonderful promise, and he gives it again. The one who conquers, that's the one who perseveres. And again, that's what Jesus will enable us to persevere. But we're cooperating with the work that he's doing and will conquer. And the one that conquers and perseveres is faithful to the end. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. This is amazing. So I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Jesus in his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection was victorious and deserves to rule on David's throne. And that's the uh, passage that Kurt read, Psalm 110, that describes why Jesus is worthy to be on that throne. And we would understand that we have no worthiness in and of ourselves to sit near the throne of God, really the authority of God's throne. And yet Jesus, in a marvelous and amazing way, says that he will share his reigning authority with us. Who are we to deserve such a privilege? He's the one who died and rose again. And yet, folks, we can be encouraged. We will reign with him. Wouldn't you agree that that promise is worthy of our full attention? So let's all of us have an ear to hear. Listen to what the Spirit says, not just to Laodicea, but the Village Chapel Baptist Church today will rule and reign with him in his kingdom. What a glorious thing that will be. What a marvelous thing. That ought to humble us. God would be willing to do that to people that formerly rejected him and rebelled against him. That's because Jesus did the work, the sacrifice, so that we could be changed and renewed and made worthy through him of ruling and reigning on that throne. Heavy influence of our world and culture just continues to seem overwhelming, doesn't it, on a daily basis. And we constantly feel the pressure to give in and participate. And that can dull our senses. And we can be lulled into a spiritual comfortability that we don't recognize where we truly are spiritually and our true weaknesses spiritually. That ought to scare us, folks. To realize that we could be that blind and that dull to our own condition. That's why we have to daily submit ourselves to the analyzation of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, through his Holy Spirit. He will show us daily, hourly, what we need to do. He's ever near. He knows our condition. 
Submit to him. Open up all the doors of your life. Let him fellowship. Submit those to him. And then let him work wonderful works of commitment and righteousness. One day we'll reign and rule with him forever. That's something to look forward to. But we have to be honest. We have to let the Spirit do his honest work of evaluation and be submitted to whatever he says we need to change. Change that. Then we will not be a lukewarm individual, a lukewarm church. We will not be disgusting, but we will be refreshing to those around us and to God. Father, thank you. A sober reminder here, but one that we needed. Lord, help us as Village Chapel Baptist Church to be honest. Is there some characteristics of this this church that has been by some scholars described as characterizing this age as an age that is filled with wealth and influence, and certainly that's the case. But could we be Could we be dulled and obstinate toward the real problems in our lives that need fixing and need change? Help us today, even now, as we finish up and as we sing, to reflect in our hearts and be willing to repent as Jesus calls to us to do so. That we would open all the doors, leave none, but none closed, and have even greater, deeper fellowship with Him. That, Lord, help us to desire and want that. Help us to see our true spiritual condition and desire change and desire further, deeper fellowship with Christ. Thank you that we can access that and that you offer that for all of those who will submit themselves to you. Thank you in Jesus' name that we pray.